remain standing and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, we'll be looking at verses 63 through 71 this morning. Luke 22, verses 63 through 71. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of God, of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. You may be seated. If you would please pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word this morning, I pray that the meditations of our hearts and the words of my mouth may be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We are getting close to the end of Luke. Uh, We have made it now through the end of chapter 22, so this has been a couple years in the making now. Uh, We will uh, read the Easter story on Easter morning, and then we will end with chapter 20, uh, uh, with the the rest of Luke there, chapter 24, Um, and then we will move on from that into the book of Acts, which will be exciting to do. Um, But during the time of Advent, if you remember, we took a little break from Luke, and we studied about who is Jesus. And we took the Apostles' Creed, and we took this phrase of who Jesus is, and we kind of broke that down. And we just spent that time understanding who is Jesus. Well, this is a sermon that's going to remind us of those things, of who Jesus is. And we're going to look specifically at the fact that Jesus is our prophet, and our priest, and our king. Because we see those three offices of Christ here in our passage this morning. So this is going to be kind of an introduction into the next several weeks, because we're really slowing things down here in Luke. Uh, These last hours of Jesus uh, are really drawn out, because they're so significant into what happens in his life. Uh, So this is going to be an introduction of how we need to approach these next couple of weeks as we think about these last hours of the life of Christ. In, uh, back in the summer of 2002, I was in my junior year of college, and during that summer, I was doing a youth ministry internship in Vienna, Virginia, which is in northern Virginia. It's about maybe half an hour or so at the most, depending on traffic, uh, from D.C., so it's very close to our nation's capital. 
Uh, it was a great experience for me. I loved being that close to Washington. Uh, I loved experiencing uh, the vibe of that city. Um, whether or not you agree with the politics that are going on there, uh, you can just sense that there is significant things happening here. Uh, plus all the history, the monuments, the museums, uh, the things that you can see. Um, I really enjoyed being there during the summer. Uh, one of my favorite places to go, and I may have shared this before as well, uh, one of my favorite places to go when I was there was actually Arlington National Cemetery. Um, just to, to go there to, to walk through row upon row of those crosses, those grave sites, uh, to see all the men and the women who have died for us in defending our freedom. Um, it just, the overwhelming sense of gratitude would just hit me as I would walk through there. Um, in the... In 1999, uh, our senior class trip from high school, we would always take a trip to Washington, D.C. And during that, one of the special moments that we would have is that there was always a group of four people who were chosen to help lay a wreath during a wreath-laying ceremony at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier there. Uh, if you've ever been to the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, it's a very impressive. There's always a guard uh, there who walks back and forth very methodically. Um, uh, keeping watch, uh, guarding the tomb of the unknown. And often they have a wreath-laying ceremony there. Uh, I was one of those that got to be, uh, that was chosen for that. It was a, a huge honor, uh, an experience that I will cherish uh, for the rest of my life. Um, and every time I uh, think about that experience or just think about being in Arlington there, just the overwhelming sense of gratitude just, uh, just comes over me. Uh, for those who have gone before us. Uh, as we look at these last several hours of the life of Jesus, I hope that that sense uh, of gratitude overwhelms us as well as we look at these things. As we look at these next verses in the life of, Luke, uh, in the life of Jesus that Luke records for us, we are entering into some pretty raw territory here. It's some pretty emotional things that are happening. And as we go through it, it's going to culminate at our Maundy Thursday service. That's going to be on Thursday uh, before Easter. I forget the exact date now. Um, but it'll be at 6 p.m. here. Uh, we're going to celebrate communion together, and we're going to celebrate the death of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So as we walk through these hours of Jesus' life, this is my prayer for us, that as we are cut to the heart by the pure emotion of it, the, the rawness of it, that we would react with utter gratitude for what Christ has done for us. That as we talk about these things that are very familiar, that we have discussed and read many times, that we would just be overwhelmed with who Christ is and overwhelmed with gratitude. That at the point that we would see Jesus, that when He comes again, that sense of gratitude would be so overwhelming to us that the only thing that we could do is run up to Jesus, throw our arms around Him with tears in our eyes, and simply say, thank you. Thank you. So that is my prayer for us as we do this. And as we walk through this, one of the advantages that we have as Christians living in the 21st century is that we get to see Christ's death through the lens of the resurrection. Now, this isn't something that Peter had the advantage of. 
as we talked about last week, because as he struggled with the fact that he had denied Christ, he didn't know that he would see Jesus again. But we have that perspective. Because Christ is not dead, he has risen. And as we read this horrendous account of Jesus' suffering and of his death, we see it through this lens. And I think this, through this lens, it's, it's a blessing, but it's also a curse. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, it's a curse because, on the one hand, we can quickly rush through this, and we say, yeah, 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 you know, I understand there was this suffering, it was terrible, and he died on the cross, but he rose again. And I think that if we look at it from that perspective, we rush through it too quickly, and we don't let the gravity of it really sink in. And I'm glad that we're taking a couple of weeks to go through this, because The gravity of this is immense, and it means everything in our lives as Christians. So on the one hand, we can rush too quickly through it, and we're not going to do that. Um, But on the other hand, seeing it through the perspective of the resurrection is a blessing. Because if we didn't understand the, the truth of the resurrection, that Christ is risen, we would be like Peter, have this crushing weight Uh, upon ourselves, this weight of despair that the disciples felt. Um, You know, when I think about what it must have been like for the disciples on Friday night after Jesus had died and been taken down off the cross, or for them on Saturday as they're trying to celebrate the Sabbath, which is usually such a joyful occasion for them, how awful would that Saturday have been for them? Just feeling that sense of, of utter despair. Um, I'm sure that there was weeping uh, throughout that day. But we don't approach the last hours of Jesus' life with a sense of despair, and that's not how we're going to approach it over these next couple of weeks. Because we know that three days later, Jesus rose again from the dead. We know that. We know that the grave couldn't hold him, that death had no power over him. And we can let the gravity of his passion his suffering and his death really sink in. But we can have it sink in without being crushed by it. Because he is alive, he has risen. So as we read and as we discuss um, this mocking that we see here in our passage this morning, when we hear about this mocking, we know that in the end, Jesus is the one who has the final word. We can cringe when we read about each blow that Jesus endures. But we know that in the end, he no longer suffers any pain. In fact, he has overcome pain. When we weep, when we read about the father turning his face away from his son, and Jesus crying out to God his father saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Usually Jesus addresses his father as father. But God has turned his face away. And now Jesus cries out in despair. And we can weep when that happens, but we know that as Jesus tells us in our passage this morning, that Jesus will be seated at the right hand of God, of the power of God. And in Philippians 2.9, Paul reminds us that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, We know the end of the story. So with this perspective of seeing these events through the lives of the resurrection, 
Let's see then why Jesus deserves the, the deep and the overwhelming sense of gratitude that we should be offering to him. So as we come to our passage this morning, um, let's remind ourselves where we are. This is after Jesus' arrest. So we had the Last Supper. Jesus predicted G, uh, Peter's denial. Peter actually goes through with that denial after Jesus is arrested there in the garden. And now they are at the house of the high priest. Jesus is waiting there. He's in custody. Um, there was probably a, a quick questioning of him that we don't have recorded here in Luke uh, that happens in the other Gospels. Um, but he is waiting his formal trial uh, before the, the chief priests here, which will come at daybreak. And during uh, this time, as we look at verses 63 through 71 here, we're going to notice the three offices of Jesus. The fact that he is a prophet and a priest and a king. And I hope that when we see what Jesus has done, who Jesus is, that will usher in this sense of gratitude to him. So first of all, let's talk about this trial that Jesus endures here with the chief priests and the elders. They, these chief priests and these elders, they come into this trial with preconceived notions of who Jesus is. They have known about his ministry for a long time now. They've been opposing him left and right. And they come in not with uh, what we say today when prisoners are on trial, that they're innocent until proven guilty. In their minds, he's guilty, and they're going to prove it. Prove that he is guilty. They don't care about the response uh, they don't care about the answers that he is giving. They just want to prove the fact uh, that he is guilty. So this is very similar to what we talked about several weeks ago. Right after Jesus cleansed the temple and he comes back the next day and the, the leaders of the temple there ask him, you know, by whose authority are you doing this? And they're not really interested in the answer. They don't want to know. They don't want to become followers of Jesus. What they want to do is to be able to condemn him. And we see this here as well. They simply want to condemn him so that they can put him to death. They're self-centered. They're self-serving. They want Jesus out of the picture so that they can retain their own power and their own authority. So nothing has changed in the lives of these leaders. So in this brief trial, we see that Jesus leaves absolutely no doubt as to who he is. So the first question they ask him is this, are you the Christ? They say, if you are the Christ, tell us. And Jesus answers very indirectly. First, he calls them out. He said, you know, even if I do answer you, you're not going to believe me. So why are we even doing this? You're not going to believe a word that I say. And then he brings up this prophecy from the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, where Daniel speaks of the Son of Man. And Jesus says, But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And very indirectly, without actually saying it, Jesus is saying, Yes, I am the Christ. And the religious leaders are smart. They are intelligent men, and they pick up on that. They understand what he is saying here. And so they, they try to draw him out. They understand that when Jesus says, I am the Son of Man, and you'll see me in power. They respond by saying, so what you're saying is that you are the Son of God. They're making that connection. They understand what Jesus is saying. 
And then Jesus responds, you say that I am. Now, Jesus isn't throwing it back on them. What he's actually doing here is is basically saying, what you say or what you're asking is true. And you can tell by their response because they say, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. They're taking it from him as a confession that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God. But let's be honest, they didn't need him to say it. Because throughout his whole ministry, what has Jesus been doing? He has been proving the fact that he is divine, that he is the Son of God. Um, He's been healing people. He has raised people from the dead. He has been driving out demons. He has been teaching with such an authority that the, the people are just blown away by it. I mean, who else could do these things unless he was sent from God? The only possible way is if he himself was divine. But they refuse to accept the evidence. They refuse. They don't want Jesus. They want him dead. So, as I said earlier, we're going to look at the offices of Christ through this to understand who Jesus is. The fact that these religious leaders missed it, even though it was so clearly right in front of their faces. And we're going to walk through a couple of catechism questions as we go through this. Uh, starting in verse, uh, sorry, in uh, question and answer 24 of the shorter catechism. The catechism asks us this, how does Christ execute the office of a prophet? And I know the catechism uses a lot of these and thous and doths and executeths. Uh, I'm going to modernize the language a little bit. So how does Christ execute the office of a prophet? It says, Christ executes the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. I'm sorry, I was reading ahead. That is, uh, that is number 24. Excuse me, how does Christ execute, how does Christ, what offices does Christ execute as our Redeemer? Uh, Christ as our Redeemer executes the office of a prophet, a priest, and of a king, both in his estate of humiliation and exaltation. Speaking of humiliation, that's a little humiliating. So, uh, his three offices of a prophet and a priest and a king. So what does it mean that Jesus is a prophet and how do we see it in our passage this morning? So, how does Christ execute the office of a prophet? Christ executes the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. If you notice in the beginning of our passage this morning, Uh, These soldiers are playing a very cruel game with Jesus, a cruel game of a blind man's bluff. They have him blindfolded, and they are beating him. And they are yelling at him saying, prophesy, who was it that hit you? Let's be honest, did Jesus know who hit him? Of course he did. But he was silent. And he allowed them to do what they were doing. They were calling on him to be a prophet, and we know that Jesus was a prophet, and if he wanted to respond to them, he could have, but he did not. And we see that Jesus is a prophet in two ways, in the fact that he speaks prophecy and that he fulfills prophecy. In Luke 18.32, Jesus spoke of this event that would happen in his life, and he told his disciples For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked 
and shamefully treated and spit upon. Just a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the fact that Jesus prophesied Peter's denial. And less than uh, just a couple of hours later, that prophecy came true. Uh, Jesus prophesied of his death time and time again. He prophesied of his resurrection, and we know that those came true as well. Um, Throughout his life, Jesus fulfilled prophecy. Um, At that very moment, in fact, he was fulfilling fulfilling prophecy from the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, verse 7, where it says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That was Jesus to the T. Um, We see the prophecies that will be fulfilled in the cross. If you read Psalm 22, there's several prophecies there that Jesus fulfills on the cross. Uh, Several weeks ago, we looked at the triumphal entry and the fact that Jesus fulfilled the prophecies of Zechariah. If you remember back to to the birth of Jesus and all the prophecies that were fulfilled there uh, from Isaiah and other places as well. So Jesus is a prophet in the fact that he speaks prophecy, he speaks God's will, and he also fulfills prophecy as well. Not only is Jesus a prophet, but he is also a priest. Question and answer 25 of the Catechism goes like this. How does Christ execute the office of a priest? Christ executes the office of a priest in his once offering up himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice, to reconcile us to God, and in making continual intercession for us. There is a lot of irony, not only in this passage, but in um, all of Jesus' passion. There's a lot of irony. So here is Jesus In the house of the high priest, he is undergoing this trial by the chief priests and the scribes and the elders and the teachers of the law, all the religious leaders there. So he's in the house of the high priest there. And we know from later on in Scripture, uh, particularly in the book of Hebrews, that Jesus is our great high priest. That this office of the high priest from the Old Testament was pointing to Jesus. That he fulfills it perfectly. But here Jesus is in the house of the man who holds this office that Jesus is the fulfillment of, and Jesus is the one who is being condemned by this office. The fulfillment of it is being condemned by it. How ironic is that? By condemning Jesus, he was actually able to fulfill his office of the high priest. Because as the Catechism reminds us, he was sacrificed for us once and for all. So the fact that he was condemned by the high priest allowed Jesus to be our high priest and be sacrificed for us. So not only was Jesus a prophet, not only was he our priest, but he is also our king. So how does Christ execute this office of a king? Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. So this reference to Jesus here as the Son of Man, uh, we remember that's from Daniel chapter 7. 
And Jesus said, you will see the Son of Man at the right hand of the power of God. Who would that be except the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords? That is who Jesus is. And didn't he reveal his authority and his power throughout his entire life? The fact that he could heal people, that he had power over sickness. The fact that he calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee. He had power over creation. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He had power and authority over death. He drove out demons. He had power over darkness. He has power over everything because he is our king. And if they didn't see his power and authority then, and if they didn't understand it at that point during his trial, they were going to see it, as Jesus said, that they would see the, right, the, the Son of Man at the right hand of the power of God. It would all be revealed to them. So as we understand who Jesus is, honestly, the question is, how do we apply this to our lives then? As we read through this and understand who Jesus is, what difference does that make in our lives? Um, First of all, obviously, Jesus is divine. None of these things should have happened to the Son of God, but these things did happen because He was the Son of God. And our first response, our foremost response, need to be that of overwhelming gratitude. We need to come to Him and say, Thank you, Jesus, for who You are and for what You have done. Thank You that You are our prophet, that you are our priest, and that you are our king. And our knowledge and belief of who Jesus is should affect every aspect of our lives. You know, last week we talked about um, the ability that we have when we believe the gospel to be vulnerable with our sin, to come and confess our sin not only to God, first and foremost, but also to each other because of the truth of the gospel. Well, to the degree that we believe the gospel is the degree to which we understand who Jesus is and what he has done for us. We need to believe the gospel. We need to confess our sins. And honestly, over the last week, I've had some really good conversations with some of you in the congregation about the belief in the gospel, about confessing sins to one another. And it's been beautiful to see how God has been working in the lives of people in our congregation. Do you feel like Peter? Do you feel like often you're overcome by the weight and the guilt of your sin? We're reminded that Christ is our priest. That He has satisfied the wrath of God towards your sin. Towards our sin. That He has made reconciliation between us and God, between you and God. He has taken your guilt, your regret, and your shame, and He has nailed it to the cross because He is our priest. And not only that, He is also interceding for us. As we mentioned in our prayer this morning, we approach God through the power of the Holy Spirit, but we pray knowing that Jesus is our advocate, that He is interceding for us. That He is taking our prayers before the throne of grace. That He is, in fact, even praying 
for us. It's amazing. Do you feel like you are beaten down by the world? That you are struggling? Do you feel like what it felt over the last several days as it just would not stop raining in central Arkansas? Do you feel like that's your life sometimes? That you just feel like it is just one rainy day after rainy day after rainy day? Do you struggle with difficult decisions that you have to make? Do you struggle with direction in your life? Well, we have confidence because Jesus is our King, that He is ruling and reigning, that even now, even when we can't see it, we know that He is a sovereign God who is directing all things. We know also that Jesus is our prophet, that He has told us that He will come again. And just as He fulfilled all the prophecies in His birth, in His life, in His death, in His resurrection, we know that He will fulfill His prophecy that He will come again. That He will return and He will make all things new. So as we suffer through this life, we don't suffer as people who have no hope. Instead, we have all the hope in the world because Jesus, our King, is coming back. So the question is, uh, how will we respond to Jesus? Are we going to respond like the religious leaders? Are we going to respond... Uh, or we're gonna, are we going to respond in a way that is utterly different? And I pray that as we look at these last several hours of Jesus' life, that yes, that we will have gratitude to, towards Him for what He has done, but that we will see this and that we would fall deeper in love with our Lord and Savior, Jesus, because of what He has done. And I pray that that heart full of love and full of gratitude will then spur us on to love and to serve others. You know, we talked uh, just recently about the fact that when we approach God in prayer, like Jesus approached uh, His Father in the garden, uh, we approach that with a relationship that we have with God. That if we love God, then we are led to pray. Well, if we love Christ, we are led to live our lives for Him, to surrender our lives over to Christ. Christ.